This episode of New Politics was recorded on the 10th of September, 2021, and produced on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast. In this episode, the Pfizer deal that didn't happen comes back to haunt the government. The National Summit on Women's Safety, did it actually achieve anything substantial or was it just more political spin? A new Liberal leader in Victoria. And the You Only Had Two Jobs message is starting to cut through. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, rugby league legend. Thanks to all those new Patreon subscribers. The number of supporters continues to grow, so thank you very much to everyone that's signing up. And if you'd like us to discuss specific political issues on the podcast, send a message to us through Patreon, and we'll get onto it. It saves us doing the research, so we'd really like to see that. And you can find the details for Patreon on our website. It's newpolitics.com.au. You can sign up there, and it's a very good way to support independent journalism. After denying it for months and months, Freedom of Information documents have confirmed that the federal government was contacted by Pfizer in June 2020 about procuring the Pfizer vaccine, but the government declined to hold high-level meetings with them, had a few sticking points over confidentiality agreements, wasted time until Pfizer put it all on hold and signed agreements with the United States and the United Kingdom in July. And Australia finally signed a deal for just 10 million doses in November 2020, which was too little, too late. And far from being at the front of the queue, which the Prime Minister kept on announcing, Australia was right out the back. Dr Norman Swan was the first to announce this news of the refusal of the government to deal with Pfizer. And we discussed this issue in our podcast in June this year. But at the time, Scott Morrison and Health Minister Greg Hunt strongly denied these interpretations. Norman Swan was ridiculed for this story, as were we, when it was released in June. But it seems that he's been vindicated. The story was correct. The government failed to secure a procurement deal with Pfizer for 40 million vaccines in July 2020, while many other countries did secure deals. And the current Delta outbreaks and lockdowns in New South Wales and Victoria might have been avoided if the government just did the right thing at the right time. It's that simple. And they can obfuscate and distract and shuffle the playing deck but that's what it gets to. They've botched it in so many ways. And then it turned out that Norman Swan had essentially told exactly what had happened, that they'd sent in a relatively junior public servant with very specific instructions that were untenable for any deal. When they couldn't make that deal, everything was taken off the table. And Australia went from potentially being at the front of the queue to definitely being at the back of the queue. And the other thing that was forgotten is that Pfizer approached Australia too. So there was a deal there that a decent dealmaker 
could have got a very good deal on. Well, I guess the point is that the government should have made deals with everyone. Everyone that walked through the door, with reputation, of course, they should have just made a deal with them. The other factor is that the government seems to have doubled down in its response to this information that's been released through Freedom of Information. Greg Hunt is simply repeating the denials that he's been making over the past few months even though the emails that have been released clearly state the opposite of his denial. Scott Morrison is now talking about hindsight, heroes, and everyone's at a legend after the fact. But given Morrison's history with obfuscation, gaslighting, spin, and outright lies, he's hardly going to come out and tell everyone that he's got it wrong last year. But the problem was that they invested all of their time and energy in the joint CSL and University of Queensland program to manufacture AstraZeneca vaccines locally. Now, that was a very ambitious project and it was a very good idea. Why not manufacture the vaccines locally? But that failed in October last year. Where was the backup plan? It didn't exist. The government will continue to attack the information contained within that freedom of information request. It's claiming that Labor is now playing smear politics and they've got it completely wrong. Now, we know that in politics, it's the court of public opinion, which is the one which decides whether something is true or not. But how many times can the government just keep denying this? Firstly, the hindsight heroes, anyone who had looked at what was going on overseas, anyone who had looked at medical advice from all the other states, anyone who had looked at the patterns of this, it wasn't hindsight. It wasn't, oh, we didn't know this would happen, but oh yeah, now we look at it. We knew what was going to happen. Both you and I had predicted this and we're not epidemiologists, but we listened to what epidemiologists said. We looked at the overseas patterns. We looked at what was happening in similar countries. So for Scott Morrison to try and gaslight us into saying that, oh, yeah, it's, it's easy once it's happened, was a lie. He's really painting himself into a smaller and smaller corner. I don't know how much longer the party is going to put up with it because each time he opens his mouth, it harms his electoral chances. And that's true of all prime ministers in a sense, but not as consistently or as obviously as it is with the current one. Now, there are extra Pfizer deliveries coming in quarter four. Now, that's not a football game. It's just that any time from October the 1st to December the 31st, we're not exactly sure how many are coming through. But you just can't help thinking that the second part of 2021 this year and moving into 2022 would have been completely different if the 40 million dose Pfizer deal had been done in July 2020. And and of course, we can look back and we can be a bit of a hindsight hero and say, well, OK, well, at the time, the vaccine development was all experimental. We didn't know what the outcome was going to be for any of these vaccines in mid-2020. But the fact is that the United States and the UK and several other countries in the European Union, they signed supply deals and Australia didn't. And, you know, I guess we have to weigh all of these issues up. We can never be certain that if the July 2020 deal had been secured, whether it would have been a 100% success anyway. Israel took on the deal that was offered to Australia. They opened up without any restrictions in early June, they've got a seven-day average of 8,000 cases per day. And that's on par with their previous highest rate, which was achieved in January this year. Their daily death rate is around 25 at the moment, which is half the rate from January of 47. So, of course, it's more complicated than just saying, well, the Pfizer deal would have solved everything in Australia, but it certainly would have helped quite a lot. Yeah. Vaccination isn't the only way through. 
and they've been saying that too. It is an important part of the way through, but it's also social distancing, hand washing, travel restriction, mask wearing, the whole caboodle. Singapore lifted their restrictions at when they hit 80% vaccination and they went from 30 cases a day and dropping to now they're back to 300 cases a day. I don't know what the fatality rate is, but it's not just about the deaths. The deaths are very sad and we've got to stop them and we've got to get them to zero. But it's a disease that is avoidable and that can knock people out for two and three weeks. The risk of long COVID is fairly high. Even being laid up for a week does damage to the economy. If you've got two and a half thousand people a day not being able to work, that is an effect that can be avoided. And I know that they say, oh, but the flu, the flu, the flu. Yes, I know the flu is different again. The flu has been with us for centuries. The corona came in the last two years and was preventable. And that's the difference. Why aren't we preventing it? Coronavirus cases today are three times higher than the previous highest level in mid-August 2020, and that's even despite the fact that there are lockdowns in New South Wales and Victoria. We do have vaccines this year, whereas previously we didn't. And of course, the Delta strain of the coronavirus is more severe than the previous strains of coronavirus, but it still all gets back to the botched management of hotel quarantine. And we keep going on about this pretty much every episode, and I'm sure that our listeners are probably sick and tired of hearing about this, but that's the critical issue here. It all gets back to that hotel quarantine issue in early June that wasn't really dealt with very coherently in New South Wales. But all we're getting in New South Wales is more deflection from the New South Wales government. Modelling still hasn't been released, even though it was promised. Journalists are asking questions about when cafes, pubs and holidays will open up, the, the things that sort of match up with their middle-class lifestyles, but the deaths and numbers are sort of being glossed over. And there's other factors that come into play. The age of the people who have died also comes into it as well, as if to say, well, these people were old and they were useless to the economy, so it's okay for them to to diet. The information about hospitalisations, ICU cases, ventilators, the media is focusing on other things. They're focusing on the bright summer that New South Wales is looking forward to. Today, there were 1,542 new COVID cases in New South Wales, and that's a record number. There were also nine deaths, and to me, this sounds pretty serious, but the main message the New South Wales government wants to put out is that freedom is on its way, there's a bright summer on the horizon, you'll be able to go shopping, cafes, holidays, pubs will be open so you can drink yourself to death if you want to. There just seems to be a massive discord between what the government is actually saying and what's happening out there in the real world. And as of Monday, the New South Wales government will not be holding their daily media conferences. And this is at a time when case numbers are expected to be at their highest. And it also means that there will be less scrutiny on what the government is doing and there'll be less accountability for their actions. It, to me, is the actions of a government who's given up. It's the actions of a government who do not want accountability. We had what we called the show and tell. Uh, and there were some very good and interesting people who come in, the emergency nurses. John Brodgan from Lifeline gave a very good presentation on the subtlety and the nuances of the mental health crisis, I thought. But they shouldn't have been at the press conference. They should have been on the 7.30 report, Channel 9 News, 60 Minutes, any number of other media outlets could have done this. 
Of course, they were there to run down the time so that journalists had less time to ask hard questions. And when they did ask the hard questions, they were avoided. They seemed to have learnt the rule. Don't answer the question that you were asked. Answer the question that you wished was asked. And this can work sometimes, but after a while, it goes down to issues of competence, of fitness for office. John Barillaro, the leader of the National Party in New South Wales, Deputy Premier, basically said something along the lines of, our government works to a different set of KPIs than the Department of Health. Now, Barillaro has a very loose grip on the knowledge of how government works. But I'd have thought that health KPIs being a part of the government would have been the same as government KPIs and that you wanted world standard. And health is really saying we can maybe start thinking about loosening some restrictions at 85%. And we've said this before, this has impact on the rest of Australia. I'm not sure when any person from New South Wales will ever get back to Western Australia. Queensland, I have family in Queensland. I don't know when I will get to visit them again. I suspect uh, the Victorian border is going to remain padlocked shut until next century. And for all of the Prime Ministers, oh, we're all Australians and we're all in this together. Well, had you done quarantine properly, we might believe it, but we're pretty sure that you do not believe that. So we're in this situation for a lot longer than we should have been. I'm hoping that we can get back to at least gigging in the new year for those of us who are musicians, and we haven't gigged since April. And not only is it an income thing, it's just a, when you can't do the thing that you love to do, that hurts too. You know, And of course, not everyone can work from home. Health professionals can't work from home in a lot of cases. Cleaners, garbage collectors, retail, all these really important jobs that are mostly underpaid expose themselves every day. Well, these are the questions that could have been asked at these daily media conferences, but the opportunity won't exist from Monday onwards. Some people have suggested that this is good riddance to bad rubbish. These media conferences presented by Gladys Berejiklian, they were mainly media spin and management. Quite often you'd know less than you did before the media conference commenced. It's an hour of your time that you'll never get back. And we've been harsh critics of these media conferences over the past 12 weeks or whatever it's been. But they should be better at providing these conferences, not getting rid of them. There is information that's presented to the public, which is quite useful, quite useful to their well-being. And there are those issues of accountability and scrutiny that need to be continued. And the media is part of this process. They're now outraged that the media conferences have been cancelled, and so they should be. But perhaps if they demanded better quality and better information from the New South Wales Premier, asking far deeper questions than when can we go back to hairdressing salons or when can we go to the pub for a drink or when can we go for overseas holidays, we probably wouldn't be in the situation that we're in today. Yeah, certainly there was some harsh criticism from surprising areas. Sky News had some very critical questions in the Daily Telegraph. Sometimes, though, they'd ask the wrong question. <laughs> if you're a Liberal government and you're losing the support of Sky News, you know you're doing something wrong to, for someone, or maybe you're doing something right. But in this case, they've been asking questions that are well within the public interest. 
And I will say, until she's decided to cancel them, at least they were giving some kind of press conference. It might not have been quite good enough, but at least it was happening. Now it's not. That's one more thing we can criticise them on, I guess. <laughs> but Dan Andrews would get up, they'd give the figures, they'd give a little bit of uh, reporting on any changes to whatever, and then he'd take an hour and a half of mostly stupid questions. Uh, there were some good questions in there. And of course, the Andrews government needs to be held to account. The Palaszczuk government needs to be held to account. The Marshall government, the Gutwein government and the McGowan government all need to be held to account too. And I'll never criticise a journalist for asking a valid, hard question, even if I don't agree with it. But if it's valid, yes, and see how the government responds. You did refer to journalists asking the wrong questions, but they're also looking in the wrong areas for their material and attacking the wrong people. A classic example of this is the attacks on Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk for announcing that if all states are opened up at a 70% vaccination rate, and that's only the adult population, it's more like 56% of the entire population. Mm. She mentioned that in six months' time, under partial track trace isolation and quarantine levels, there would be 80 deaths per day, which is not an unreasonable assumption. Contact tracing has been scaled down in New South Wales. Numbers are still escalating, even though people are in isolation. And we've talked about the quarantine issues ad nauseum. So these are not unreasonable assumptions for a Queensland Premier to make. And it's all in the Doherty report. I've read the report and it's actually in there as a verifiable figure. Mm. But the media proceeded to slam Palaszczuk for announcing these figures, accusing her of scaremongering, but they attacked Palaszczuk for standing in the way of their narrative of opening up at all costs. That's the only reason why she was attacked in that particular way. So we've got this upside down world where Leaders who want to protect their citizens are being attacked in the media for wanting that, whereas the leaders who are happy to disregard public health and safety and sacrifice their citizens for the sake of the economy, they're being lauded and supported. So we know the reasons why they're doing this, and it absolutely stinks. But just at this time, we'd expect more from the media and more from our political leaders. They've spent 20 years putting in people who will do as little as possible to allow big business to get away with as much as they possibly can. It has been wildly successful on the Liberal side, not unsuccessful on the Labor side, but less successful. And so far, too, the Greens haven't been, as far as I can tell, the Greens haven't been infiltrated. If they start to get the types of numbers that they're hoping to get, that probably will happen, not because they're inherently bad, but it's a human organisation with all the flaws of humans. The National Party, of course, is filled with boof heads. It's really the best word I can use to describe. Barilaro, Barnaby Joyce. I've been saying, we've been saying that there's going to be a clear out of stuff because of this pandemic. And I think poor representation and, and a soft media is one of the things that's going to be cleared out. Whether as a direct result or as an indirect result, I don't know yet, but I can't see us putting up with this stuff for much longer. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts. Listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible or find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now follow us at Patreon. Up next, we look at what happened to the National Summit on Women's Safety.
National Summit on Women's Safety was held earlier this week. It was a two-day event held in response to the allegations of a rape at Parliament House, accusations of historical rape against a federal minister, and the revelations of a culture of sexual harassment and abuse within politics earlier this year. But it's hard not to think of it as an event that was created to resolve the political issue of the day rather than the issue itself. It was a two-day talk fest. Morrison was a keynote speaker and spoke for 40 minutes. There were sessions from business people, the police, some experts in the field. And then the closing speeches were from Senators Maurice Payne and Anne Rustin. There's no next step to arise from the summit, and it was just held a few days after the government refused to accept 46 of 55 recommendations contained in the Respect at Work report. We do have to be positive when events such as this are held. It provides a spotlight for the issues of sexual harassment, sexual abuse and domestic violence perpetrated against women, and it's also an opportunity for public input into these issues. But I do get the feeling that this summit was all about Scott Morrison and an opportunity for him and his government to be able to say, well, here's the issue, we're doing something about it, when they're actually not doing anything at all. Yes, when in doubt, form a committee or have a summit. And there were some very strange... The two Liberal women closed it seemed to me to be fine in that we weren't going to expect much better and at least they did pick women. And I noticed one of the criticisms of the show uh, Misrepresented was that they spoke to people like uh, Bronwyn Bishop and Amanda Vanstone. Whereas I, again, speaking as a man, they were women in politics. They had an experience that may have been different to the experience of Penny Wong or Natasha Stott-Despoja or Sarah Hansen-Young, but it was still an experience that I think should have been documented. At another point, I'll go through some of the things I didn't like about the show, but certainly liberal women are women. And given who ran it, it was actually surprising that, and two of the more reasonable members too of the Liberal Party. I'm not saying that they're great or that I'm necessarily a fan of them, but they, they're not wrapped in the same controversy as some of their other counterparts. We'll put it that way. It was odd having David Koch. Of all the men you could have, he presents himself as an unreconstructed old-time bloke. And that's fine. He rates well enough that he's seen off three female co-hosts and he is still there. He, he got the job through the misfortune of his predecessor who had to leave the job because he was ill. That was no good, but he's done well in the job. But I wouldn't have thought that he was the best choice to present a, a man's view for women as being one of the key. I could think of others possibly who might have given a better message well, it did seem like there were quite a few friends of the government involved. So Laura Jays from Sky News, she was the facilitator. She actually did a good job. But I'm thinking, well, why choose someone from Sky News to be the facilitator? Like, sure, she's a woman, but there's lots of other women that could have done the job. As you mentioned, David Koch was there for some reason. Now, of course, you need to include men as part of this conversation. Perhaps some of the reasoning was that David Koch is a media personality. If other men see that someone like him is involved in this process and part of the conversation, that they might become involved and take it more seriously. But overall, the event just seemed a little bit slapdash. The website that they put out there was quite basic. The communications seemed quite rudimentary as well. You can go and look at the recordings of the event on the website, but 
there's quite a few broken links there. It's not a, actually an official government website that's holding all of those recordings. I was expecting something a little bit more like Kevin Rudd's 2020 forum in 2008, which had a lot of fanfare. There was It was quite a high-key event. But this seemed quite low-key, which seemed to be fitting into the government's wishes. Like, we want to make a bit of a song and dance about it, but not too much, because we're really not interested in these issues. It needed to be more substantial. Sure, have representatives for the media and even someone like David Koch, but have police officers, have social workers who deal with domestic violence, have lawyers who deal with domestic violence, have emergency doctors and nurses, have people who really know what they're talking about um, from direct experience. Again, David Koch is fine, but there were so many more better people. We've had all these high-profile cases in the entertainment industry with Jeffrey Rush and uh, Craig McLaughlin and, and others. We could have heard from the women involved there. So why not have some of those women come in and talk about what happened? There's a whole range of experience that they could have tapped into to get something really meaningful and great. But as usual, they've done it and they'll be able to go to the election and say, look what we've done. And people who weren't watching will say, oh, they did that. Oh, well, well, maybe I should vote for them, particularly in swinging seats. He only needs a majority of one. Well, this also, historically, the Liberal National Party hasn't really taken that much interest in domestic violence issues or sexual harassment, or it doesn't take it seriously enough. Possibly because there's this belief that it only is an issue or these are only issues that affect low income, low socioeconomic families. But research has shown that it's across the board, high income, low income, professional classes, unskilled, Anglo migrant, doesn't matter which community you come from or which sort of background you come from or where you live, it's across the board. We also have that example of Alexander Downer when he was the Liberal leader back in 1994. He announced his domestic violence policy as the things that batter and then said, look, everyone just go and have a cold shower. Everyone should be able to accept jokes in public life. We also had Tony Abbott when he was Prime Minister. He appointed himself as the Minister for Women in 2013. And recently, the federal government has appointed Lorraine Finlay to the Human Rights Commission. Now, not many people might have heard about her, but she's been a critic of Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act. She was against same-sex marriage legislation. She opposes affirmative consent laws. She's got issues with sexual harassment laws as well. She was a candidate for the Liberal Party in the recent Western Australian election. Now, that's not to say that someone that's a member of a political party shouldn't be appointed to a federal government commission, but it is a continuing story that the Liberal Party and the National Party don't seem to take this issue seriously at all. And everything they do just reinforces this. And it's almost as if they're treating the electorate with contempt particularly that part of the electorate who thinks this stuff should be taken seriously. Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act, there's the, a lot of the opposition has died down about it, but you still get the odd rumble of, oh, we've got to get rid of it. No one will actually say what it is that they object to it about. They just object to it. And, of course, it's because they can't call people of different backgrounds racial names. And... You know, it is an indictment on the society that we have to legislate this stuff. It just should be something that would never occur to anybody to do. But that's what it is. They've put in a non-feminist woman. And again, opinion is fine and having different opinions is fine. But 
if they really wanted this to progress, they'd have put in, maybe they'd have had a bipartisan committee with women from all parties. Maybe they could have got someone more neutral. They didn't. <laughs> now, it has been estimated that the cost to the community of sexual abuse, sexual harassment in the workplace and domestic violence against women, it costs the community and the economy something like $26 billion each and every year. And the government historically, I've talked about all of those issues that relate to the Liberal and National parties when they're in government. They pay lip service to all of these ideas. Historically, they have cut back funding for domestic violence services, but they did actually increase it in the 2021 budget. Now, it has been increased as a headline figure to domestic violence support programs by $1 billion, but it's hard to see exactly how this money is going to be spent and where it's going to be spent. Part of it is that they can point to that and say, well, look, here's what we're doing about these issues. We've had the summit. We've increased domestic violence support programs by $1 billion. And it gets back to what I said before. The upshot is that this government doesn't care too much about the issue. It adds women to the name of ministries and puts women in the front row rather than the back row in photo shoots. Scott Morrison has a few women sitting in Parliament behind him during question time so they can be seen on national television. But for me, it's all paying lip service. It's more about trying to remove a political issue for them in the lead up to the next federal election. Yeah, exactly. Everything they do is about keeping the job, not because they have a job to do, but they like to be in the job. There's no policy. There's no vision. There's no sense of serving Australia. There's no sense of anything but getting as much out of it as they possibly can for as little effort as possible. And I'd like to say maybe there's all this work being done behind that we don't see, but there's not because <laughs> you see those results. And we, we don't have a thriving economy with a, a well-regulated health system dealing with a pandemic. We've got a shambles. And you can only hide that from people for so long before it starts to backfire. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible or find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now follow us at Patreon. We've got one thing in common with Scott Morrison, and, and that is that we get criticised for being too Sydney-centric. It is where we live, so that's understandable, but the good news is that we have news from Victoria. Matthew Guy is back as the Victoria Leader of the Opposition. He was previously the Opposition Leader between 2014 and 18, and he led the Liberal Party to an election loss in the 2018 Victoria election. That's where the Coalition lost 11 seats after the race-baiting campaign that they led that was talking about African gangs not being able to go out to restaurants, exploiting fear in the community. So that was a totally unsuccessful campaign. In the Victoria Parliament, Labor holds 55 seats to 27. So the Liberal and National Party Coalition, they would need to win 12 seats to, to gain office. Now, it's difficult to see this happening, but we do have to remember that 
Jeff Kennett was ridiculed. He was seen as a buffoon. He was erratic and unpredictable, but he became Premier after his second stint as an opposition leader in 1992, and that was a landslide election victory. Matthew Guy isn't quite seen as a buffoon like Jeff Kennett is, but he is as erratic and unpredictable. He was actually an advisor to... Jeff Kennett. Now, if we look at what was going on in 1992, Victoria Labor had problems with the Pyramid Bank collapse, and that's a nice name for a bank in the early 1990s. Who could have seen that coming? (laughs) (laughs) There were divisions in the Labor Party. There were many problems within the Victoria economy. Victoria Labor today doesn't seem to have those problems. There's issues that could still arise from the handling of the pandemic, but could Matthew Guy achieved the same result that Jeff Kennett achieved 30 years ago in the 2022 Victoria election. I know that's highly unlikely, but you never know in politics. I've said many times, usually just before going ahead and doing it, that I've given up predicting what's going to happen in Australian politics. I think what Kennett had, he had some fairly substantial people behind him in terms of a reasonable cabinet and for all the buffoonery of Jeff Kennett, it was nowhere near a uh, Tim Smith, say. And if there was corruption, and I'm not suggesting there is, but if there was, it wasn't as obvious and as blatant as Matthew Guy has shown. We said in the last podcast that it looks like the Liberal Party is heading quickly towards major reforms and restructures and maybe even... Uh, being crushed into ashes and being rebuilt. Putting Guy in, I don't think, helps. Now, to be fair, he may have learnt lessons and and done a whole lot of self-reflection and self-improvement and has come back a better and more substantial person. And we'll keep our eye out for that. I'm not holding my breath for it, but these things do happen. Winston Churchill was considered a joke, went on to become one of Britain's greatest prime ministers. John Howard, Lazarus with a triple bypass, although he, I don't think he was ever considered a buffoon and certainly never had the allegations of corruption around him. Anything can happen, but I think with the fairly solid performance of Andrews, if I was the Liberal Party, I'd be looking at a two or three election strategy at this point. And keeping my eye out for scandals and and incompetencies that might gain you seats. But they're too focused on hating each other. Well, also, recycled leaders doesn't tend to happen that often in, in Australian politics. So there's Matthew Guy, he's been recycled. You mentioned before John Howard. Jeff Kennett, of course, but it doesn't really happen that, that often where a leader is in the position for three or four years then they go onto the backbench because there's been a challenge against them and then they they return. I guess it does give them more time to think through what they've done wrong in the past and come back as a better leader. On the Labor side, the only one that I can think of is Kevin Rudd when he returned to the leadership in 2013. It was unsuccessful for, for him. There's a whole lot of different circumstances that were going on there because usually a leader of the government is rarely toppled and then returns to the position. It tends to happen more in opposition. But there might be a case for Matthew Guy to be thinking about what sort of errors he made in the 
four years that he was opposition leader between 2014 and 18. But so far, he's only been in the position for three days this week, but so far he's been out there with the megaphone trying to push all of those issues, complaining about Daniel Andrews. Like, you do need to make noise to become noticeable as an opposition leader, but sometimes you just got to learn to keep your mouth shut at the right time. Daniel Andrews is an immensely popular figure, and he's an odd figure in that most political figures have those who will absolutely sit in the foxhole and wait for them to yell charge over the top. Then you get a large group of people who kind of like them and they're fine and they're aware of them and uh, maybe, maybe not, blah, blah, blah. And then you get those people who absolutely hate them. Daniel Andrews seems to be missing that middle group. It's either 70% of people who think he's brilliant and 30% or less or more, I'm, I'm not quite sure of the figure, who think he is dictator Dan, the worst thing that's ever happened to not only Victoria but Australia. Now, it's a small minority, but it's a vocal one. But without that middle group who you can swing, it makes it very difficult at this point to unseat Daniel Andrews, I should think. Qualitative research is showing that the you had two jobs messages coming through within the electorate, and that's the message that's being put forward by the Federal Labor Party, and that relates to vaccination rollout and quarantine system bungles and delays, and that's directly linked to the current lockdowns in New South Wales and Victoria. And there's also a perception that Morrison is out of his depth, relying more on spin and deflection rather than actually doing his job. And Relying on spin and deflection, that can only carry a leader so far. We've mentioned this before in our podcast, that incompetent governments can stay in office for a long time if the electorate doesn't think that the opposition would be any better. And that's just not a matter of opinion. The 2016 and 2019 election results show that that was the case. I find it strange, but the electorate considered Morrison and the coalition would provide a better government than the Labor Party in 2019. And that's shown to be completely incorrect. But the the longer that these lockdowns continue, the you had two jobs message that Labor is pushing forward. It's got currency and meaning. And this is really starting to buy it within the electorate. But what if there are no lockdowns? What will the message from Labor be then? You could still look at daily cases. You could still look at the lost times where they were in lockdown. The government has given a large target that is easily hit from a close from even a far distance and all really all they need to do is remind people that during the bushfires scott morrison went to hawaii and then came back and didn't do very much during the pandemic when the whole state was in lockdown and borders were closed he flew from canberra to sydney and he tried explaining through the circumstances that it was within the guidelines la 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 no one believed him nobody cared All they need to do is look at that. And I think that you don't need to then give very much policy detail. You just need to show where the government has failed. And it becomes hard for backbenchers to defend. I know that there were a lot of Liberal members who were dismayed 
at Morrison sneaking back to Sydney to spend time with his family for Father's Day when nobody else could really do that. People had been knocked back for funerals. People can't go and see sick relatives. People just can't go and see relatives or friends. If your friend is more than five kilometres away, you can't see them or 10 kilometres in the country. I think that's the answer to Labor, just keep hammering on the hugely obvious weaknesses. Now, the press will run, oh, it's always negative, negative, negative. But I think the anger is too strong for that type of message to temper people's response. Now, Labor does have some good messengers delivering that you only had two jobs message. One of them is Mark Butler. He's the Shadow Health Minister. He's pretty much every media conference that he provides, and he's the health minister, so it's within his portfolio. But he keeps pushing out that message of, the two jobs and you failed at them, Mr Morrison. And that relates to the management of the pandemic. It relates to vaccination rollout, the bungles in hotel quarantining as well. So that's a message that he keeps putting out. Christina Keneally, she's another one that's been putting out that message as well. She's actually moving to the lower house at the next election. She's actually a senator at the moment. She's decided to run in the seat of Fowler. That's a safe Labor seat, so she'll more than likely get in. But are the pieces beginning to fall into place for Labor for the next election, or is there still a lot more work that they need to attend to? I think they've got to work out an alternate strategy for using the mainstream media. Mainstream media aren't interested. Albo gets a little bit of a cut through, but not much. Not as much as he would. I'd go back to the 2007 campaign and look at what was successful there and see how it could be updated to 2021. I know it's 13 years ago or 14 years ago, so things will have changed. But successful campaigns are successful campaigns. And if you're not winning in politics, you're not doing anything. And you've got an eminently beatable government. Well, beatable governments don't always lose elections, but Every election is a winnable election. Every election is a losable election for both sides of politics. Strategy-wise, there's so much material for the Labor Party to work with and there's so much material that has accumulated for them over the past eight years that they can use from three consecutive incompetent governments. But just facing an incompetent government, that's not the only thing that wins elections for an opposition. It's the government of the day is the leader it's the campaign it's the strategy it's all the tactics that they use the way that they use the media in 2007 it was the kevin 07 campaign i'm not too sure if elbow 21 or elbow 22 has got the right tone to it but the labor party has probably got their word mechanics and spin doctors working out a new set of slogans for them you only had two jobs has a good ring to it but that's not an election slogan so they'll probably come up with something else And of course, we still don't know when the election is going to be held. There is still strong talk of the election being held in November. I'm not so sure about that, but unpredictable events can always happen in politics. That's why we find it so fascinating. Yeah, as always, we will be watching and commenting on both sides' tactics, and hopefully one side will do well in their tactics and not stumble over the line like the last three elections. All we can do is wait and see. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very, very simple. 
If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It helps keep our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in, and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time. Thank you.